Today we're going to look at this thing, this tune-up mentality, man. I want you to know that it helps prevent a breakdown and keeps a great life running. It's, it's preventative and proactive. Here's the thing. Relationships require preventative maintenance and proactive participation. When, when you and I just expect things to happen, they, they don't. But, but when you and I become proactive, our whole lives become productive. And I know that we have a generation coming up behind us, like two generations, where everything's entitlement. And it's not that I'm banging on that generation. It's just a cultural reality that we have created for them. But I want you to know this, that nothing takes place without some intentionality. Intentionally turning to Christ, intentionally turning your faith uh, to Him and to His will, intentionally taking action in a relationship uh, before the last service, talking with some people. And I, I began to really think about the uh, the... the Whether this series was legitimate, I can't think of a word. Um, The legitimacy. Is that a word? No, it's not. It is? Okay, cool. Uh, Of this series. And then I was like, you know, maybe we're just wasting our time. Maybe we shouldn't do mailers with that. Maybe we should do. But you know what, man? I keep hearing. I'm like the last filter that someone gets information. You would think I know everything about the church. I know very little. People tell me very little. They keep me in this bubble sometimes. And I guess that's good. And then sometimes people just come up and bust the bubble after, after the service, right? And I realized the relational dilemma that not only our culture is in, but the church and our church is in in many cases. We're heading to. And it broke my heart. And I just went to my office and said, God, I'm heartbroken. I can't carry this in the next service. Please just give me your power. But what it did was encourage me that we're on the right track. And then when people avoid series like this, inevitably they come and say, you know, they'll avoid this whole series. They come to me in December and say, can you help me? You know, this is the best that I've got, baby. I mean, this is it. This is hot off the press. But with this, with everything we've looked at, we said it from the beginning, you've got to be proactive. Proactive means productive. So when you have a troubled area, you've got to get proactive. What we tend to do, what we tend to do is avoid and, and here's what happens. We avoid this one area, and we avoid it, and we avoid it, and we avoid it, and it affects every other area. How many people have ever gone to work, ready to have a great day, had something bad happen at work, and did come home, and it affects your relationships at home? You take it out on them. Yeah, thank you for being honest. The rest of you, uh, get, get our message online, okay, because I know that it probably happens to you too. How many times have you ever been at home? And, and you get into it with your wife, usually right before you come to church. It's always a really good time to get in an argument on your way to church. I know that's my wife and I's favorite time. Then you have to walk in and act spiritual, right? But how many times have you been at, at, at home and it caused disruption at work or in some other place that you just can't focus? Yeah, this thing is a reality. It's the body. There's just, the God has worked it this way, this interdependent way. We categorize, okay, here's my prayer, here's my Bible, here's my spiritual life big wall. Let's cut that off. Here's my work life. Here's what is my, okay, let's cut that off. Here's my fun life. God said you're a holistic being. He wants to redeem your spirit, begin there. He wants to redeem the rest of you. That's called sanctification. You get all of God, but he doesn't have all of you from the start. So he begins to take back what's his, right? Until you see his face. But we like to just kind of, you know, categorize things and, and, but God doesn't do that. If you Pinch a nerve in your right hip. Some of you have done this. Some of you 
are, are experiencing the, the, the benefits of, of getting younger, or pull a muscle. What happens is this. You would think that everything just kind of hung out, but what happens is, man, every part of your body begins to respond. Inflammation begins to set in. The left side, so you've heard the right side, the left side begins to pull harder to kind of take up the slack, and your abs begin to work more. And so what happens is you actually can pull your left side just because you have a pinched nerve or a weakness over here in your right side. And just the same reaction when your relationship's affected in this area spiritually, it's affected financially, it's affected physically. We're just holistic beings. And so as we look at this, I want you to know that. We mean well. We mean well in our lives. So many times come to church and pastors bang on us, and they're like, we're just, we want to say, listen, you don't know me. You can't see my intentions. I want to do right in this relationship. I just don't know what to do. And here's the natural reaction that most of us get. I don't want you to feel alone in this because this is part of my DNA too. We assume things, and then we assume when we assume that, things we can't quantify, we just feel strong about, we begin to make statements. I mean, we feel something strong, and then we make a statement. We assume something, assume some, something about somebody or their intentions, or this trigger, or what they've done in the past, and we're like, all right, they're doing it again. We assume this, so we make statements. But it usually doesn't get us anywhere. But God has provided a principle slash technique. This time, it moves from the what to the how. It's one of those crazy things that God has provided. Jesus did this. I want to get some validity to it from the Scriptures. Jesus did this on the cross. The disciples practiced it. And it gave them amazing help and insight. I mean, I'm talking, it made them effective in ministry. Part of it was this. God did it in the Garden of Eden. Paul used this principle to introduce Jesus Christ to people who wanted nothing to do with God. Check out uh, the book of Acts. 1 Corinthians, which is probably the greatest relationship chapter, one of them of the Bible, the whole chapter's written because of this principle. And then Paul was like, okay, you're, you're, doing, you're hitting on the right cylinders. I'm going to go hit it on the right cylinders with you. I'm going to use this principle all through the chapter to benefit our marriages, to benefit our lives, to benefit the physical intimacy, all of that in one chapter on relationships. Incredible. And here's the piece that you're going to wonder why did I come here today. It's football day. Why did I come here and get out of bed for this? But here it is. Great questions. Come on, man. Great questions? Here's the reality. Great questions create great opportunities. Great questions create great opportunities. Let me say it again. Great questions create great opportunities. Here's what we usually do. Defensive questions. Defensive, defensive questions create chaos. You're gonna, you, you, you are wanting to win an argument, guys, so you will try to... Make her feel dumb, which is the worst mistake you could make because she could remember everything you've done and said since the first time she met you. But you've got this argument you're going to win. You have got, I mean, Einstein would be a, a, a impressed with your equation. You're going to make her feel dumb. So you throw it out there, what happens? She makes you look dumb. And then she replaces you being dumb in a situation you didn't even know you were being dumb in. She'll be like, 
Okay, yeah, okay, I get you. Remember in 07, we were at the family get-together, and you said this? Well, let me tell you what happened. When you walked away from the table, my whole family thought you were an idiot. You're like, Thanksgiving's coming up. That's, that's not very cool. And you've got all this stuff to work through. That you, you, you know, and it's, it brings chaos. Defensive questions create chaos. Irrelevant questions create that lost feeling. What are we fighting about? Let's see, you said this, and I said this, and then, well, I didn't say, I always said that because you said this, and then back and forth, and then finally, like, when you do settle the argument, you're like, what were we fighting about? Well, it began with an assumption or an irrelevant question, because the reality is this, great questions create great opportunities. I mean, it's so natural to make assumptions. Here's why we like it. It allows us to release emotion and helps us avoid the reality and responsibility of the situation. So if I can be like, "Hmm, how does this benefit me? That's not what I'm thinking. That's what my mind does. How can I protect myself? How can I make myself feel better? Because that's what we do naturally. Assumption. Oh, yeah. Statement. I've got this big emotional release. I feel better because now you get to carry the stuff that's been on my heart and mind. And I don't have to take as much responsibility, if any. I can avoid that altogether. So know this. It's natural. It comes easy. And it does help us shirk responsibility. You're you're exactly correct. But assumptions get us nowhere. And that is what I I just, I hate that the couple that I got to talk with, one of the couples after the service, I hate what they're going through. But it's so validated, and they were thanking me for the message, that it validated what the Bible reveals about this great truth that, that we just pass over. Because, man, when I did the message, I was like, oh, my gosh, is this even valid? And I began to think about all the verses. I kind of started in Job, and then I, because I'm nonlinear, I should have started, like, in Genesis, but I started in Job. And then I go back to, like, Genesis. Adam, where are you? Did I not, Adam? Did I not, Eve? You know, all these stuff through the Old Testament. Proverbs. What is his name? What is his son's name? You know, all these questions in Song of Solomon. Where is my beloved? How long, Israel? And I kind of went into the New Testament. I was like, Jesus did this all the time. They would ask him a question. He would answer with a question. And this was Jesus' way. It was just unbelievable. Great questions create great opportunities. And I thought, you know, sometimes, okay, let's, let's, let's put this right where we live. Let's just take some assumptions that we practice in our relationships that frustrate the daylights out of both of us, and let's see if there's any remedy for that. Now, some of you know me, and you've been here for a while. I don't want you to panic. It's going to be more uncanny than uncomfortable, right? Some of you are like, thank God, because my friend's with me, and I know how you can be. So just chill out. It's going to be uncanny more than uncomfortable. Let's just dive right in with these assumptions, man. If you really knew me, you would know. If you really knew me, you would know what to do. Let me set you free if you've heard that. Unless you are Professor X from the X-Men, you're not going to know. Unless you can read other mutants' minds, you're not going to get it. Anything that needs to be known has to be communicated. 
Nobody can win by saying, if you know my needs, you'd meet them. If you knew me, you would do it. Needs must be communicated. Email, snail mail, smoke signal, sign language, something. They have to be communicated. This is one of the greatest lies and assumptions, because, and it leads right to this next thing, in the prevention of soulmates. We are soulmates, assumption number two. What this means in good times is it's meant to be. You know, you and I were meant to be. We are soulmates. I don't know how we were meant to be. I don't know what happened, if God put us together or whatever, but we were meant to be. So I can't think of anything how to explain that. Let's call ourselves soulmates. In the bad times, when you're wanting to leave, you will say the same things. We are not soulmates. I met this guy at work. I met this lady at work. We are soulmates. We both like Leonard Skinner. We both like the rebel flag. We both like faded jeans. We're soulmates, man. We both are in miserable marriages. It's, it's a sign from God. We are soulmates. I want to help you with this assumption. Because remember, we're just going to get some assumptions. This is just stuff we throw out. I thought, well, rather than just bank off this, because there's some better things to look at, let's just answer some of these. The only thing that comes close in the Bible to being soulmates God never said that about relationships. It's in the world of physical intimacy and the sexual genre. Because if you look at verse 31, and this is all through the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 7, when it talks about physical intimacy, there's a soulish exchange. Two become one. So anybody that you've had a physical relationship with sexually is your soulmate. Well, Jamie, that is not what I mean by that. I get it. But I'm just saying biblically, because we're going by the Bible. We're not going by, you know, daily devotions or Stuart Smalley or Dr. Drew. I mean, we're saying Bible stuff. The only thing that even hints at that is a soulish exchange in physical intimacy. We're going to retrofit this later in some other message. Don't even worry about it. But just know this is an assumption. If you've been beat with the soulmate thing or you're like, oh, my God, we're not soulmates. Quit panicking. It's not biblical. It's emotionally driven. How about this one? If you change personally, you have to change relationships. That's a big assumption. When we got together, they loved poison, man. We rocked out the poison. Now they like Mumford and Sons. I mean, I used to be part of the Rat Patrol. She was part of the Rat Patrol. Back when they were, like, before they were on reality TV and talking like dudes. I mean, we were part of you know, Motley Crue. We knew them. We were talking like dudes, you know. But now they've changed. They don't like the same things as they used to. If you change personally, you have to change relationships. Is a lie. They were once a size. Now they're a size. You ever notice when people go through a divorce, they're a completely different size altogether? Like there's a size they get to that they never have gone to, right? They're a size, we're a size. God created change in your relationships. This is my personal belief. I think we can validate it with principles in the Bible. God wants you to change. That we know. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. God wants you to grow. God wants you to move forward. As you grow, things about you change. There's some things that won't change. If you're introverted, you're not going to be an extrovert. Unless you were acting like an introvert your whole life to get people to like you, okay? You finally discover you're an introvert. You know, there were things that changed about me radically. I used to emote more and I'd write poetry, believe it or not. And the more I got healthy, the less I was like, yeah, I don't really care about poetry. I care about leading, right? I care about moving forward, things I didn't care about before. But the basis of who you are is not going to change. But as you grow... Your life changes. 
As you grow, your body changes. Can I get a witness, you know? The size these jeans are now were not the size jeans I wore in 85. Can I get a witness? You know what I'm saying? Amen. I've got my mother's hips, my father's love handles, and they've met in the middle of my stomach. It's just not good. We change for the good because God wants us to change. We change for the bad because we want to change. But God never said, good or bad, leave that person when change takes place. I believe that God allows change, good change, healthy change, allows us to grow, allows us to become different. There's realities. The physical piece is just part of getting older. It's part of the fall. Hair turns gray. Hair falls out. I saw some pictures of myself the other day. Hairline, not much different. Hair color, a lot different. I mean, it was a whole other guy. Who is that guy? Excluding that, when your tastes change, your personality makes some tweaks. It's going to happen as you grow. There's going to be interests that you're like, well, you don't like to say that. Man, there, I don't, you do not want the 22-year-old version of Jamie Johnson on the stage. You do not want to go to lunch with the 28-year-old version of Jamie Johnson. You don't want to come and counsel with the 30-year-old version of Jamie Johnson about your problems. He is a different guy than today. But you take two people, one's changing, the other's changing. I think God did this to create new variety and spark in your relationship. I think God said, and and really culture proves this physically, men men peak sexually at a different age than women. I've always thought that God just did that. To, to create, to create a, an ability to bond physically through some of the most tumultuous years when you're young and when you're old. But as you look at this, you see, and now I've got to live the other side of just physical intimacy. I've watched myself change, watched my health change, watched my wife's health change, watched our personalities, you know, basically introvert, extrovert. But I've watched wisdom come in. I've watched prudence come in. I've watched some of the foolishness come out of our relationships. I've watched some stumbling blocks and bottlenecks that, that we've been, both begun to ask great questions. In, and we've changed. And we are not the same people that married on June 19th, 1999. We are not those same people. But our relationship continues to get better and to grow. God creates change, not so you'll leave, but so you'll stay. So these assumptions that we make, now you've got to go back, let's rewind. It's one of the couples I talked to, we've got to rewind. Both people have to be willing to, to make compromise, to make changes, to listen, to talk, to hear, and be heard. Both people have to be willing to do it. You've got to be proactive for it to be productive. But if you have two people that are willing to make that grade, then I promise you, God promises, my promises are irrelevant. God says you can make it work. How about this promise? We are blank and we should be blank. We are here and we should be there. We are 25 years old and our friends that are 25 are right here. We are 35 to 40 years old and, and they are here And we are here. They have this, and we have this. If you want to live miserable, live that way. Now, used to, you'd come out of your driveway and say, okay, what are the Joneses? Keep it up with the Joneses, right? Now we have a whole different thing for Jonesing. But but you you come out of your house, and you're like, okay, what do they have? They have a car. Okay, they got a Jaguar. If I buy a Jaguar, I'm going to look kind of silly. I'm going to go buy, hey, I'm going to go buy a Beamer. Or if, you know, if you're you're in a different part of Kentucky, they've got this jacked-up four-wheel drive, and you're like, if I go buy that, Okay, I'm going to go by that, but I'm going to put a rebel flag on mine because it's super cool. Now, here's what we do. 
totally different situation. We not only look around, it's not so much our neighbors, we look at our friends. Now we've taken it to a new level, we look at our families. You say, you know, my parents are this age, and when they were this age, they were here. That is an awful weight to carry. Well, our friends do this, and so all you do, when you compare yourself, all you do is become jealous, and you never measure up, and that becomes a driving force, and you don't, have, you don't enjoy anything about your life. But it's a big assumption. God has a plan for your life. Discover the plan, and then take the measurements. Don't go by chronological age, race, job strata, you know, social economic strata. Don't go by that. Go by God's plan for your life. See, there's that assuming thing. Ask a great question. God reveals great answers. You have great freedom. I can change him or her. Now, here's the way it's communicated. All they need is love. That's all they need, man. They need me to kiss them all over. And their whole lives will be different. Nobody understands them. They've got a crazy ex. I know. They, no, nobody gets them. They're holding out for management. I can't help it. I'm drawn to bad boys. I can't help it. I'm drawn to girls that need me. Here's the relational reality. No one can change unless they want to take steps to change. No one can change the core of a person but God. And God cannot do that without people's permission. God will leverage the all power of heaven and earth. That's what he said he had. He will leverage that to your life. He will leverage that to my life. But the one thing that will stop that dead in its tracks every single time is your and I's permission. God is a gentleman. He waits for the door to be open. He does not kick it down. This assumption I can change people. We don't say it that way. That's what we want to do. And we're always disappointed when they don't. They say, you're not the person I married. No, they're not the person you wanted to change when you married. They're the same person. They're the same personality. All these assumptions. What if we said this together? I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to take one. Now, don't try to do them all the time. You're just going to frustrate yourself. You're going to frustrate yourself. Just say, listen, I'm going to take one one assumption, and I'm going to think about the statements I make when I make that assumption. Okay, I make that assumption. Okay, I can change it. These are the things I do. These are the things I say. And I'm going to give this to God. And in its place, I'm going to begin to ask great questions. I've been saying, and I feel it, and I listen to music that reinforces it, that, that we are soulmates or you know, uh, that, that we've got to change because we've changed. I believe what Jamie talking about. I believe I'm saying, ba- you know, do you base your belief on like the Beatles or this thing? You know what I mean? Is it those guys that they say what you feel because you're miserable or is it this? Because if it's this, those assumptions with statements don't, don't add up. Don't try to attack them all at once. What if you begin in one area to ask great questions? When I first began reading the Bible, everything that I read became a posture for me to argue with someone else. I'd be like reading along, get ready, Jehovah Witnesses. Yeah, you know. Oh, I couldn't wait for them to ring the doorbell. Ding dong. You know, SWAT team for Jesus, man. Oh, I would read something in that lady that was a church of Christ that I went to college with. 
or my Pentecostal sister, you could spot her. She didn't have makeup on. She had the dress on. Oh, get ready, sis, when I come to sociology. Kia! It's coming. As I've gotten older, I've begun to do this. Ask questions. Now, when God speaks to my heart, I'll take a note on it. Then I try to compare it with Scripture. If it seems kind of funny, I put a question mark on it to this day, like a big question mark. I don't know if this is biblical, but it sounds biblical. And if I read a verse that says it's not biblical, then I'll throw those notes away. But it began to ask questions. So let's take what we read last week about relationships, and let's just see if we can get any great questions from this. See what questions you get. If you get some great questions, write them down. We begin at verse 21. Submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and itself is, is its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. Don't panic. We're going to retrofit the submission thing in another message another time. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Are any questions coming, man? Come on. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be found holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one, no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Isn't that funny that we do that even if we think pain is what we feed ourselves with? It's unbelievable. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, cleave, cling on to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Or that's soulish encounter. That's talking about physically, you know, and then they're soulishly connected. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I was terrible at questions when I got started. My pastor said, I was single when I started meeting with my mentor. He was like, what are your questions? Jamie, a great question changes everything. A great question will change a person's life. And he's looking at me real intense like he does. He's like, what are your questions? First thing that comes to your mind, what is your question? Uh, do you think I'm sexy? Okay, let's go to another area. What else? Do you love Jesus? Okay, what about the third one? Do you still think I'm sexy because I mentioned Jesus? That was it. That's a rough place to start, right? I mean, I'm on a relational track to nowhere, right, as a 24-year-old guy. But, but I learned that you can ask great questions. I mean, even as you begin reading this passage, you could say, how can I show you, guys, you could say this. I mean, there's so much to us in this chapter. How can I show you my love other than being naked? I mean, how can I do that? That's a great question. A lady could, in, in, in retort, could say, what things make you feel respected? I mean, there is some stuff here. I mean, we could get into the, the nitty-gritty on, on biblical roles, so we could just ask just basically, what is the significance of biblical roles? What if we applied them in our relationship? I wonder what would happen. What does dad leading the family create? 
What does mom honoring and respecting and using her influence with respect create? Well, chapter 6 gives the answer to just that question. Chapter 6 says that a kid feels safe and the relationship has safety. The relationship and the kids have protection. Believe it or not, in chapter 6, by asking that one question, we discover the definition of self for a child, its identity. There's this thing of feeling loved, because there's all these challenges to be loved. And remember, women like to feel loved, men like to feel respected, because respect equals love. It raises up future leaders, male and female, in life. We could also flip it. We could play devil's advocate. We could say, how has this, by neglecting this, how has our family or other families been devastated? How, by abusing this, what has happened in other families, we could transfer that to us. Just by leading, reading this, we could say, who, who leads our home spiritually? What does spiritual leadership provide? It's, it provides freedom. I don't know about you, but most of the homes that I encounter that I know, not just on an interpersonal level, but, at, but at, you know, just at a, at, a, at a surface level. Spiritual leadership is not heralded by a man. That's very feminine to most people. You know, we, we do bake sales, we do bazaars, we do choir things. All the things, men, you know, men don't like to sing, men don't like to bake. I like I like being on the other side of the table. I like to be the sampler. I, can, I, can, I guess I could be part of the baking ministry if I was the sampler. I could do that. So men come into an environment like church, and they're like, this is nothing. Like, we're, we can't be competitive. God is competitive. God competes for the souls of men. God is adventurous. You want to try adventure? You think the rock climbing and, and a trip to New River Gorge is adventurous? Try saying to God, I give you my life. Everything you've let me accomplish, I leverage for you right now. Try saying that if you want, if you want risk. Horseshoe has nothing on that kind of gamble. Nothing. But dividends are higher, too. It's eternal dividends. What, what if you began to lead? What if you didn't do it out of defense or like, oh, i got to lead? We ask people to, to ingest the Bible. Most men hate to read. Most women hate to read. We ask people to do all these things, and we wait on our wives. Kind of, okay, do you want to go today? Do you want to go? Do you want to tithe? Do you want to serve? Okay, well, okay. Do you? I don't know. Do you? What if men just said, we're going to go today? And, she, and if a woman said, I'm, going to, I'm not going today. Okay, kids and I are going. We'll see you later. What if every time, ladies, your husband try, tries to transfer that spiritual leadership to you, you're like, that's yours. That's between you and God, big boy. That's you and Jesus. That's what my wife does. I hate when she does it, too, because I can always tell her. I can always tell when she's giving me over to Jesus and the responsibility, because I feel like a thousand pounds on my neck, and I'm like, did you give me over to Jesus in an area? Could you give me a hint so I can know what I can begin to work on? Because this really blows. What would happen if you led? I know you don't feel adequate. The Bible doesn't say anything about adequacy, academia, degrees, small groups, that you have to that you have to have like certain amount of small group time and discipleship classes. We have all that. We we believe in that. But he says just choose. Choose to love. Choose to lead in love. Choose to lead spiritually. I know you want to categorize your life, but you are a co, you are an interdependent being, not a codependent. You're an interdependent being. This is a holistic gospel. Jesus saves you spiritually. You get all of God, but he doesn't have all of you. 
And so for a lifetime, he begins to grow you and change you. So exhale, quit worrying about being perfect. And so then you kick in the respect, ladies, and you're like, listen, I know I've read the Bible a million more times. I've got a thousand devotions. I've got the Bible on my iPhone, but I'm going to let you lead. And I'm going to see what God reveals to you. You're talking about a guy that will take the helm spiritually. Here's what happens in most cases that I've watched. The women are like, ooh, let's put the brakes on there, cowboy. I wanted you to be more churchy, but you are way out of control. You're going to a meeting a week. You're going to a small group. It's what you prayed for. It's what you, it's what you desired of him. But being the Holy Spirit, let him lead. What if we took this and we got so personal, we said, where am I spiritually? Ooh, man, I hate that question. And yet it's an incredible question. What if we said, how is our life sexually? Verse 31, what if we just said, husband and wife, how is our life sexually? How could we, how could we create more mutual fulfillment in our marriage? After so many years of marriage, that is still uneasy for most of us. Because there's this real defensiveness, body image, and performance and all that. But right there's the open door from Scripture. Hey, is there anything I can do to make our, our intimate life better for you? I'm all in for that. I, I want to be a part of that. We, we're the only exclusive people meeting each other's needs. It's no different than saying, hey, is there, is there a dinner that you want me to fix? Or do you want me to, what kind of takeout do you want? It just becomes something that you can talk about. It's right there in the Scriptures. Maybe you could ask from this, and you could truly ask this, why do we fight when we try to share? Have you ever noticed every time we talk about anything, we get into an argument? Let, let me ask you this question. Then you ask them, you don't defend yourself, you let them answer. Do you ever feel like you're right when we're in a discussion? Do you ever feel like you're wrong? You let them share, wrong in a discussion, let them answer, you don't say a word. Then they turn it on you and they say, do you ever feel like you're right? You answer honestly. You don't, you don't sit and compute, okay, well, i got to assume that they're going to get mad if I say this, and then that's going to cause a problem, that I'm going to be sleeping on the couch. No, you just answer. Drop the assumptions and ask great questions. The Bible is filled with it. Look at this amazing example as we close. Revelation. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. One of the elders said to me, weep not. John, quit crying. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. John is looking. He's hearing this. He's hearing. He's seeing prophecy. He's seeing these visions. Who is the ultimate difference maker? Who can make a difference in people's lives? Is there a person that can conquer? Is there a person that has authority? There are all these religions. Look at the wording and the questions. There are all these religions. There's this assumption. Is there any man who is righteous enough, spiritual enough, to make a difference for everybody? John begins to look around. Nobody's standing up. 
John begins to maybe think of friends or religions or experiences, and he knows he's disqualified. He thinks about every maybe speaker he's heard, every religious challenge. Nobody is coming to mind. And the hopelessness that grips him is unbearable. He starts to cry. And one of the people, one of the elders standing said, John, don't cry. The lion of the tribe of Judah can do this. The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is the deal breaker, the difference maker. He can do it. One great question created one great opportunity. Jesus Christ died, was buried, rose again. Who will go for them? Who will stand in the gap? Who will be the difference maker? Jesus said, I'll go. One great question in your relationship, without being defensive, without being assuming, without making statements, can change your relationship whether you feel it can or not. Because great questions create great opportunities. Let's pray together.